Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, present with us now. Speak through my words. Help us to hear what you would say to us today. Amen. A while back, I read an article by a guy called David Winter. He's a retired Anglican minister, broadcaster, writer. And he wrote about how every day for about 20 years on his way to work, he passed beneath some of those words that we have just read together, inscribed in marble, in Latin, in the entrance of his workplace. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. His workplace was Broadcasting House. They were apparently the prayer of the first governors of the BBC for the content of the corporation's output. He asked himself whether the current BBC lived up to that standard and summed up his feelings in two words. Oh dear. One feature of our postmodern culture is a, is a loss of faith in any institution. And let's be honest, we can take church, government, police, you name it. We can find stories which show them at their worst. But we always do them justice at their best, do we? Or when someone stands out and seems really to be a great person, how often do people say, oh, they're too good to be true? Or there must be some skeletons in their closet. Or when the film industry or TV dramas produce a new drama about a famous person's life, how often does his illicit affair or her hidden drink problem gain more prominence than it merits? And it's not just the skeletons in the closet or digging the dirt mentality that we should be wary of. We've got a 24-hour news culture and in a way that's good. We can be more aware of our world than ever before. We can find out what's happening at any time at the touch of a button. But 24 hours a day is a lot to fill. Something which just a few years ago would have merited all oh, a few mentions on the news. Just has to expand and expand so it becomes like a collective obsession. I think the news is a good thing. Karl Barth said that a Christian should look at the world with one eye on the newspaper and one eye on the Bible. That kind of dates the quote, doesn't it? Because not so many people read newspapers these days. But the basic premise is true. And I encourage every Christian as far as possible 
to get informed about their world. If only because that helps us pray for it. But it can be very easy to lift that one eye from the Bible and focus entirely on the news and be caught up in oh, a seemingly imminent spiral of destruction and despair. So Thomas Moore once said, occupy your minds with good thoughts or the enemy will fill them with bad ones. Unoccupied they cannot be. We're surrounded by media, conversations and events which fire for our attention and lead our thoughts astray. And it requires effort to overcome that. But as Martin Luther once said, you can't stop a bird flying overhead, but you can stop it nesting in your hair. Not that it would want to with some of us. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. I must admit, I read words like that. I think about my own life. And like David Winter at the BBC, I see how I measure up against those words and think. Oh dear. But face them I must. A wise piece of advice I was once given was that if I find myself struggling to get alongside Paul's models, it might be best to try to get there. And I want to highlight what this passage is talking about. I heard a story recently about a philosophy lecturer who was working in his office one day with the door slightly open and he could hear a conversation between two of his students outside. One of them was really upset because she had just broken up with her boyfriend and the other one was trying to console her with all the usual stuff. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, you were too good for him. There's plenty more fish in the sea. But she was getting nowhere. And then the friend who was offering the advice just said, look, you just have to be philosophical about these things. And the friend stopped crying and said, what do you mean? And inside the, the office, the philosophy lecturer's ears pricked up as he thought, yeah, what do you mean? And to his horror, his response came, oh, just don't even think about it. Those words we've read about rejoicing and not being anxious. It almost comes across like that sort of song from a few years ago, you know. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Add in verse 8 and you could read that assenting towards positive thinking. And you could read this as like a recommendation 
Oh, just don't think about it. Live in denial. Don't worry about those things. Think happy thoughts. Now, when Paul was writing this, there was a school of philosophers that were quite popular called the Stoics. And they were encouraging people to train themselves to believe that material things just didn't matter. Live your life on the higher plane. Whatever life throws at you, just treat it like it doesn't really matter. And even today, there's lots of books out there about the power of positive thinking. We even still talk about being stoical. And it's still a quite popular philosophy, although we might not recognise it as such. But we've even set it to music. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Or you'll hear people say, well, if it's going to happen, there's nothing you can do about it. It's fate. And that was primarily the Stoics' reason for thinking, don't worry. You can't beat fate, so why let it bother you? But Paul's not encouraging the Philippian Christians or any of the other Christian groups to whom he was writing to live in denial. They're not words to say, don't even think about it or think happy thoughts. When Paul writes this, he's in prison, quite possibly awaiting the death penalty. Paul himself has referred to a whole string of things which have happened to him. Mob violence, being kept in prison because it was politically expedient, shipwreck. Even now he's in prison, there are people who ought to be on his side stirring up trouble for him. And he's writing to a church which, from its foundation, has faced opposition. Some of it's external. These Christians worshipped a man who those Romans had condemned as a, as a criminal worthy of the death sentence. Or they tried to help Paul by sending Epaphroditus. And the trip went wrong when Epaphroditus felt ill. They just seemed at the mercy of circumstances. And Paul also warned him about other people outside who would try to make out that the Philippians weren't good enough, that they'd been sold a dud, that the message Paul had given them wasn't really the whole story. And they kept going. But it wasn't just outside they could run into problems. Even if they got past all of that, and overcame all of that. They could still stumble at another hurdle. They could start fighting amongst themselves. They could fall out. For 2,000 years, Christians have been able to do more damage to each other often than their enemies have been able to. And Paul doesn't deny those problems exist. In fact, the only reason we know about them is because he told us about them. And nor does he say that they don't matter. Of course they do. 
So when Paul tells his people to rejoice and says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's not saying, oh, just be philosophical about it. Put it behind you. Think good things. Paul doesn't deny those experiences. He filters them through a different lens. Here we come to the major difference between Paul and the Stoics. Between Paul and maybe us sometimes. Certainly between Paul and many people today. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. You're in the hands of an impersonal faith. Which might offer you a coping mechanism, but it doesn't really offer much in the way of hope, does it? Whereas Paul's message is shot through with hope. He encourages them to rejoice in the Lord. He reminds them that the Lord is near. When he urges them not to be anxious, he talks to them about offering prayers to God and talks about God offering his peace and the peace of God being with them. Earlier he's spoken of a confidence that the God who had begun a good work in them would carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So what Paul said is you are not in the hands of an impersonal faith. We are in the hands of a personal loving God who if he's begun the good work in us will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. His love will win. Because we're in the hands of a personal, loving God who finishes what he starts. As one of my commentaries put it, when Paul appeals to the churches to rejoice, they're not just simply encouragements. They throw the distressed churches onto the Lord. They're all appeals to faith. And Paul doesn't just talk about it. He lives it. Rather than restricting Paul's missionary endeavours, all that's happened to him has opened doors to reach people he would not otherwise have reached with the good news about Jesus. Lockdown has probably had more people listening to church services this year and hearing about Jesus than would have done otherwise. Paul's imprisonment made him news and got people talking about Jesus and who he was more openly than Jesus ever was spoken about before. Even the extra endeavour his opponents putting it, put into causing trouble simply led to them talking about Jesus. And that supposed failure of the trip of Epaphroditus was far from it. It actually encouraged Paul. It offered him conf confirmation that Paul's efforts in Philippi had been worth it. And those aren't Paul finding silver linings in the cloud and blankly think, oh, it'll all work out in the end. If it hasn't worked out, it's not the end. 
For above all, he's pointed to Jesus, a supposedly defeated Messiah on a cross. And how at the very moment, which seemed like defeat, God was exalting Jesus to the highest place. That has given Jesus the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Without exception. And they will acknowledge his lordship. We're not in the hands of impersonal faith. We're not mere victims of circumstances. And we need not feel that we are. We are in the hands of a God who has displayed his love for us and his commitment to us in giving himself for us. True, we live in a troubled world and we can't escape being touched by its trouble. Putting our faith in Christ is no guarantee that we'll never suffer in life. But we are promised that we're held by a God who finishes what he started. And in the resurrection, he has started putting that hurting, broken world back together. He's working all things for the good of those who will put their trust in him. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. That's the grounds for each of those appeals from Paul. Rejoice in the Lord. Because nothing can stop God completing what he started in. On the night of his arrest, Jesus said to his disciples... In the world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we don't need to settle scores, to make others get what's coming to them, to fight fire with fire, even if it's the only language they understand. We have no need to make certain that we get our own way. We can afford to let our gentleness be evident to all. We can afford to live by the law of grace. For we know the Lord is near. He's bringing to completion all he has started. He is with us, around us, within us. He understands what we experience, good and bad. And as we wait... We can live in hope. For we're not in the hands of an impersonal faith. We're in the hands of a loving God who is in control. Who is continuing the good work he has begun in us. We don't have to pretend things don't matter. We don't have to think, well, whatever will be, will be. We're in the hands of a loving father who cares about us and knows what is best. 
who knows where he's taking us and knows how to get us there. We can let him know our needs, no matter how trivial or huge and impossible they seem. If it matters to you, it matters to God. Our source of peace is not the kind of, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so why worry? It comes from being loved by a God. And as we offer our prayers to him, he sends his spirit to pray right alongside us. And in ways we can never fathom, he says, you're a child of a God who loves you. You are mine. Nothing will take you from me, whatever happens. Nothing. And with all that in mind, we are free to park that need to dish or dig the dirt on those who offend us. We're empowered to face all the negativity that we're bombarded with by our media, our surroundings. It comes from within us. Because we're held by a God who says, yeah, I know in the world you have trouble, but I've overcome it. We can park it there by the cross of Jesus and turn our minds to things that will last. The things that are true and noble and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Those things aren't exclusive to Christians or the church. There are others who give of themselves to enhance the life of our community around us. But God wants us to be people of salt and light. Joining others in seeking all that is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and praiseworthy and excellent. We're invited to join in, carrying with us the story of Jesus, the tradition we have received, all that we have learned and experienced in our relationship with him. As we seek to be salt and light, putting flesh on the gospel. So whatever is true, whatever is noble. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard or seen from those who remind you of Christ, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Grace and peace to you.